732 in the morning. Roger Horowitz is with us live via telephone. The name of the book, Roger Horowitz, I should say, is a uh, food historian and director of the Center for the History of Business, Technology, and Society at the Hagley Museum and Library, author of many books. The book is called Kosher USA, How Coke Became Kosher and Other Tales of Modern Food. Roger Horowitz, welcome to JM in the AM. Well, thank you for having me here in the morning. I appreciate it. A pleasure. Uh, Why is Coca-Cola always cited has one of the key stories, one of the key episodes when discussing the topic of kosher in America. Well, first reason is that it's the first uh, big product to become kosher. It's the first time that a major food manufacturer changes ingredients to accommodate kosher requirements. And so that's 1935. That's a huge event in the development of kosher food. The other reason is the rabbi involved in doing that, Rabbi Tobias Geffen, makes rulings that become incorporated in the kosher law as other rabbis end up looking at kosher products. So it's significant for the first, but also for the kind of approach that he took that really defined the way rabbis now understand how to make products kosher. So there are precedents involved in what he did that... uh... Absolutely. Absolutely, very important precedent. And you mentioned, and you mentioned the change of a recipe. It, do you have, as a historian, and I don't mean to question your your assertion, but the, or your assertion rather, but do you have a uh, do you have definitive information that in fact Coca Cola had to change or did change their secret recipe to accommodate the kosher community? Well, they did change the recipe, but they didn't change the secret ingredient. That you know that remained the same. Ah, I but got absolutely. you. Yeah, but so yeah, it's still Coca-Cola. But they, oh yeah, they changed what was in there. Uh, they changed the source of the ingredients. That was the main. That was the main issue. Uh, Coke was using glycerin, and the glycerin, Rabbi Geffen discovers, comes from essentially animal fats, which include non-kosher animals. Um, and he says you can't do this. You can't have an ingredient which is sourced from a non-kosher source. Uh-uh, it's not kosher. Uh, and then he says, and even though it's there in tiny quantities, it can't be bituminous. It can't be nullified because it's essential to the creation of Coke. Mm. And so Coke says, okay, we'll find glycerin from someplace else. And they get it from uh, cottonseed oil uh, through Procter Gamble's story there. But they change it. They change the, the, the composition of it. Uh, and over time, you know, this is sort of amazing. Glycerin, which is, you know, it's hidden chemicals, it changes throughout the American uh, you know, food industry, that now it's very hard to get meat-based glycerin. If you want to sell your glycerin these days, manufacturer, it's going to be kosher glycerin. So, yeah, right. they do change the formula, absolutely. And and from their angle, I mean, we're talking about the 1930s, you know, the, the Jewish population, nothing compared to what we're used to today. Why would they think it was worth the effort at that time to make this change to accommodate a niche market? Well, Food manufacturers, even if it's a small market, they want to sell to everybody. They don't want to have somebody else have a competitive edge. They didn't want to have a kosher cola come in to take off that market. Because, that, you know, in New York City, a lot of observant Jews, they didn't want to have that happen to them. So Coke just wanted to shut the door on any sort of possibility of an erosion of its dominance. And I guess, that's why, I guess that's why they're Coca-Cola, right? I mean, that's... Yeah. That, that's yes. the, that's the way they do things, and uh, that's right. That's right. Well, you know, other people do this. I mean, I mean, not so long ago, when Coors Beer decided to move to the New York market from you know, Colorado, you know those ads they right. have, you know, sure. Western sounding guys. They wanted to move to New York area, and they made it kosher because they didn't want to have any obstacles to the expansion of their product. It just 
one of these business decisions. And the and the round buys then and now, they're very good at saying, well, you can do this, and it's not going to cost you anymore. You're able to do this. It's not going to affect your product. And if you do that, you're going to open the door to some new markets. And on the consumer angle, especially for those who would, you know, frankly, in the kosher market would drink any beer, they're more comfortable possibly, and it looks like, you know, the evidence is there, you know, drinking one that actually has a hashkacha. Well, you know, I mean, if you're going to go for a light beer, I'm to be honest, what's different? You know, I mean, you know, light beer. So you want to go for a hashkacha. You know, why not? Go right. for that one. It's, it's, going to be, it's going to be safer, you know. Do that. So it also allowed Coors to, to market their beer through Jewish circles. Hey, we're kosher. So it becomes a marketing opportunity for these companies to say they're kosher. Roger Horowitz is with us. The book is called Kosher USA: How Coke Became Kosher and Other Tales of Modern Food. In one of your, um, in one of the uh, the pre-release um, uh, publicity uh, pieces, they spoke about the uh, the fact that Hydrox was kosher, Oreos were not, or at least did not have a hashgacha. Uh, how do you explain that? What did you find in your research that would explain why that was the case? Well, I mean, um, Oreos for a long time, like a lot of baked goods, used lard. Mm. That was just the way they did things. Um, and what happens with, you know, so, so this Hydrox is sort of what the scenario that uh, Coca-Cola wanted to avoid, where you can get an analog product that's kosher that grabs a piece of the market. Um, what happens with Oreos is, is really fascinating. Uh, the problem they face is the institutional market. I mean, they're selling as Oreos, okay? They're, they got they got a huge market just, you know, without being kosher. But they couldn't sell Oreo-based cookies and cream ice cream to a lot of food distributors. There's the food distributors, you know, it's a Dexo, Aramar, they're selling to lots of people. And they want one cookies and cream ice cream, not multiple ones. And they couldn't have ones with Oreos because it wasn't kosher. They want to have a kosher cookies and cream ice cream. So what happens with Oreos is inside Oreos, the folks who are selling to institutions say, look, you're creating a sales problem for us. And it's a big sales problem because like, we can't get it to Sedex, so we can't get it to Aramark. They're not carrying our products. We need it to be kosher so we can be in with the major food service providers. So that's what provides the push. And then you're talking about big bucks to get it with these, with these uh, institutional suppliers. Unbelievable. Um, what does it say about... Our community, very active consumers, um, uh, more influenced than we think, or, you know, we, ma- we make a tremendous amount of, uh, of um, we're very active when it comes to making our voices known for how badly we want certain foods to become kosher. What does it say about our community that all these changes are made to accommodate it? Well, it says that, that you know, Jewish consumers are discerning consumers. I mean, they, you know, they, they, they want to have kosher products, and uh, they do make it known, and if you want to sell do them as a community. That's that's what you do. Um, but it's also that the power is greater than the numbers would would indicate. Right. Look, we are a small minority. Right. Really that's a the small point. minority. Right. You know, that's that's the way it is to be Jewish. But what happens in these big food operations is like the Oreo story. You want to make one product. You don't want to make two. So once you start trying to have kosher products, then all sorts of things start turning kosher. All sorts of ingredients are kosher. Right. And there's all sorts of stuff in food. But if, if, for example, you're a young startup and you want to create a color, a food color, and you want to sell it to manufacturers because it's better than other ones, you make it kosher because the big food manufacturers won't buy it unless it's kosher. They don't want to have the trouble of kosher and non-kosher. So all this goes back up the food chain. So people say now that ingredients, the stuff that goes into food, 70, 80 percent kosher because if you want to sell it, you want to make it kosher because it just opens doors. And that goes right down the line there. So then if you're a company that's making a product and you want to turn it kosher, 
you do have these options. Right. The OU works very hard to present them. Kosher USA is the name of the book. Roger Horowitz is with us. Uh, so we discussed some of the stories that tell us about manufacturers and the food companies wanting to infiltrate, quote-unquote, the, the Jewish and or kosher market. Uh, then, then you have a case of the opposite, uh, where you see Manischewitz in the early uh, part of the 20th century uh, trying to take their products into the mainstream market and doing so with a major advertising campaign. What did you learn about what uh, you know, today is so often referred to as Manomanischewitz? <laughs> Well, it's a, it's, a, it's a wonderful story because, uh, you know, it's sort of a Manischewitz wine, and Manischewitz wine is the first crossover product. In the 1950s, 80% of its consumers are not Jewish. They're African Americans. And what happens is Manischewitz becomes an enormously popular beverage among African Americans in the 50s and in the, in the, in the 1960s. Uh, it, it's, a, it's sort of it's a predecessor to what's happened with Bartonero Moscato, where that also has become popular among African Americans, not to the same, same degree. And Manischewitz, you know, they're advertising on the radio, on television, in the newspapers. Buzz Aldrin, when he lands on the moon, he steps on the moon, and he goes, Man on Manischewitz, at the view of the earth. That's, that's how popular their slogan is. So uh, it's a huge crossover product, and of course it's a huge help for the Manischewitz food company because they put these ads in and it connects them to that area. So it's, a, it's, a, it's one of these breakthrough breakthrough products that kosher, kosher food has. It's unbelievable. And the ad campaign is so, for those who are not familiar, and I, even I was too young or wasn't even around but you know, at the time that it started, uh, you don't realize how much the campaign really infiltrated American society. Well, if you want to have some fun, go on YouTube and um, enter Sammy Davis Jr. Manischewitz. And it'll take you to a television ad that Sammy Davis Jr. did for Manischewitz in the late 1960s. Hmm. You know that, that's that's uh, you know that's really a wonderful story. I mean that you know that company is is still around and is still you know pushing its wares and doing a very good job. I and mean, I I was invited up to their offices um, plant a couple of weeks ago and had a chance um, to look through it. And you know they're they're generating new products. They're figuring out ways to use the kosher certification they have and the systems they have set up. Just other kinds of certifications to have organic, GMO-free, uh, and you know, what's interesting here is that the kosher requirements can be translated over to these other kinds of certifications that other kinds of consumers, not Jewish consumers, care about. Now, this is a world where consumers want to know, and kosher, the way you make things kosher, the way you monitor to make things kosher, can be used for other purposes, and other people copy the kosher method. There's a there's you know, the organic certification, non-GMO certification, wild caught, all that kind of stuff. These are third-party certifiers, like if you will, the OU, that say, okay, it meets our requirements. So, in terms of being influential, you know, culture leads the way for other parts of the population as to how to control their foods, and it gives an opportunity for kosher food companies like Manischewitz to reach out beyond the Jewish market and say, well, look, we're GMO. They're sardines, for example, are wild caught, and that's a, that's a big thing. So very interesting dynamic in the food industry today with the kosher food. And finally, we got to talk about kosher meat for a moment. Uh, at, at what point did it, beca- did it go in the history of, of kosher in the United States? Did it go from you know, almost impossible to obtain kosher meat to a point where it became readily available to the consumers? Well, you know, beginning of the 20th century, kosher meat was available. You know, you had the slaughterhouses were in the cities where the Jews live. You know, and, you know, that goes through a long decline, and to the bottom, I would say, is probably the 19, early 1980s, when the food companies just stopped doing kosher food. They just, they just, they just, kosher meat, they just, the big meat companies just aren't interested in doing it. 
uh, and then you kind of have a recovery. That's when agri-processors get involved. And, of course, there's a lot about agri-processors, but it needs to be said that 1987, when they start, there's a shortage. And they go in, Alley Processing goes in, International Glot, other companies come in to try to generate these kind of kosher food products. You know, and then you have a new opportunity to distribute these things. Now there's all these supermarkets where you can buy kosher chicken. You can buy kosher organic chicken, kosher organic free-range chicken, again, <laughs> multiplying certifications. You know. And, you know, it's a great thing. I mean, to me, that kind of availability is about American democracy, being able to go into your stores, you want food a certain way that meets your religious requirements, and you can get it. You know, it's not such a small thing to be able to go to a baseball game and get something which you can sit down and drink and enjoy watching. It's not a small thing. You've got a kid with you, you want a child to enjoy fully American society. So to me, this is about democracy, having this kind of development of the availability of kosher food. Very interesting. Roger Horowitz is the author of the book Kosher USA, How Coke Became Kosher and Other Tales of Modern Food. Good luck with this book. Oh, by the way, how do people obtain the book? Well, you can buy on Amazon. There you That's go. go. Oh, Amazon Kosher USA, bingo, you go right there. And, and, and to my to my pleasure, they're selling it for a discount. So you actually can, you know, get it for, for I guess, selling well enough that they're willing to drop it down 25% of the price. It's a Columbia University Press release, and it's called Kosher USA by Roger Horowitz. Roger, thank you so much. Great speaking to you about this. Okay, thank you very much. I enjoyed it totally. Thursday morning broadcast. More coming up if you keep it right here at JM in the AM.